The scripture is from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 through 7. Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. This is the word of the Lord. So maybe you've seen, uh, you've seen young kids do this. Kids are notorious for this. Maybe you've been this child before. Uh, kids can do this, and it makes us chuckle a little bit, and yet it also makes us uh, kind of sit back in wonder. Uh, but maybe you've given a child a gift, and they open it, and they discover that the box is more exciting than the toy. Have you ever been around a child that, that does that? Maybe you've done that as a child. Uh, hey, here's this $30 gift that we, gave, that we wanted just you know, for you, $50, whatever it is. The box is pretty cool. This is fantastic. Uh, you know, sometimes what's on the outside uh, and what's on the inside, there's a difference between those. And uh, sometimes we can be more attracted to what's on the outside. On the other hand, maybe you've also received a gift where you, uh, you, know, you open up the paper and the box itself indicates that there's something really expensive on the inside. And you think, ah, oh, this is cool. This is going to be a great present. I'm so excited. Thank you so much. Thank you so... Mittens? What? You know, like, have you ever, ever had someone pull that on you? A fooler box? Uh, well, you know, I think in our society, in our culture we have grown very accustomed to fooler boxes. We've been accustomed to, to people advertising themselves and trying to present themselves to us as something that maybe they're, they're not really, and then they're discovered later on. Uh, you know, even this week, it, it's heartbreaking, and it's hard to wrestle with Bill Cosby and what's going on there. I mean, I don't know what really happened, but a court, a jury has decided that He's not Cliff Huxtable. He's not America's best family man. He's, he had another side to him. That what was on the outside of his life, that he was Cliff Huxtable, you know, from the Cosby show, the, that he was this great all-American uh, uh, doctor and dad, uh, a spokesperson for so many wonderful things, that yet there's this dark secret side of his life. And we've grown so accustomed to maybe being fooled by that that we can be skeptical. And yet, at the same time, we don't know what else there is. Our world doesn't know what else there is to go off of because we still kind of cling to the idea that we can present ourselves and we ought to put our, our energy and invest our time in, in how we appear to others. That what's on the outside, we're convinced, the world is convinced, that what's on the outside is what matters. Now, you can say that that what's on the inside is what really matters, but we struggle with that too. Uh, interestingly enough, a number of actors and actresses struggle with this. Uh, everyone from Viola Davis to Tom Hanks and others, that they've been interviewed and they've said things like, every time I'm on set, I worry that someone's going to realize that I'm not, that I'm really faking it, that I'm not who everyone thinks I am. 
that this image that I portray to the world is one thing, and I, I inside know that I'm not that person. So we, we know that what's on the inside is better than what's on the outside, but then when we think about what's on the inside, we struggle with, is that really good enough for the world? I can't really let anybody know what's going on inside me. And so we wrestle with this. Well, the Apostle Paul is talking about this this week. He's talking about, and here's the last verse, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. That we, Paul is talking about this directly. And so he's going to tell us, one, what we most fear, two, what we least expect, and three, uh, how, how that plays out in our lives. So one, what we most fear, two, what we least expect, and how that plays out in our lives. Um, so first, what we most fear. There's a Princeton professor who, uh, a couple years ago, very famously published uh, his resume on Twitter, and it went viral. And maybe you, you heard about this, maybe you saw it. It was different than most resumes. I mean, if you're in the academic world, your resume or your CV, you know, all the things you've accomplished, all the things you've discovered, your, the work you've done, the, the grants you've been approved for, the research you've done, like all that speaks volumes as far as who you are professionally and the, the academic world regards you accordingly, right? So interestingly enough, this Princeton professor published a CV of his failures. He, on the, on the internet, he published a list of all the degree programs he did not get into. Uh, and those are the ones that he, he said he applied for and got, like, it was a finalist for, not to, not to count the ones that he applied for and wasn't invited back for. Uh, academic positions and fellowships he did not get. Awards and scholarships he did not get. Paper rejections from academic journals. Research funding he did not get. And he says, most of what I try fails, but these failures are often invisible, while the successes are visible. Uh, and he says, this CV of failures is an attempt to balance the record and provide some perspective. And the last thing on his list of failures is the fact that his list of failures has gone so viral and that he's more known for his failures now than for anything he's actually accomplished. And he said, there's got to be irony in that. The thing we fear most really is being ordinary. It's not just failure. It's what failure feels like to us. That It means we're not extraordinary. It means we are Normal. There's something about being normal that, that really makes us uncomfortable. And the Apostle Paul is saying, we're normal. We are jars of clay. We're ordinary. And there's something that's really offensive about that. So first, let me talk about why that's offensive. I think that's offensive for, for two reasons. One, uh, for the last 100 or 200 years, in our country, in our culture, um, we have grown accustomed to a certain version of the gospel that's not the complete gospel. We've grown accustomed to the idea that the gospel is maybe two chapters. The first chapter says that, that I, I am broken, I'm a sinner, I'm, I'm a mess up, and, and I need forgiveness. And the chapter two says, but Jesus is our redeemer. He gives us the forgiveness that we need, and he restores us. But there's more to it. If you look at all of Scripture, you see that it really begins with we are made in the image of God. That we are designed with dignity and made to be treated with dignity. And we are, are created and designed to treat others with dignity, no matter who they are, no matter what the color of their skin is or what language they speak, where they're from, how much money they make, where they stand in society. We are made to be treated with dignity and treat others with dignity. And when you understand that, 
The second part about how we've messed up and we need forgiveness feels entirely different. Because although we've screwed up and we're guilty, we're not the scum of the earth. Although we're undeserving of grace, we're not worthless. We're not worthless. No. We have value because God has made us that way. And there's another chapter after that said God will make all things new. But we've somehow zeroed in on those two chapters in the middle, and sometimes we can miss the bigger picture. I think there's another reason as well that we, uh, that we slip into this. The first one uh, is, is the idea that in Genesis chapter 3, we see Adam and Eve happy and content, being creatures made by God. They're provided for by God. And then the serpent comes, Satan comes, and he introduces the idea for the first time that, that God is trying to beat them, that, that God is up and they are then down. Satan puts a wedge in their minds, and all of a sudden it's not okay just to be human and to be provided for, to need God, and to be provided for by God, to, uh, to need his love and to be loved by God. All of a sudden, it's, it, Satan is saying, God is pitting himself against you, and unless you're like him, you're worthless. Those aren't his exact words, of course, but he introduces that concept, that, that you're losing and God is laughing at you. I think that's a lie presented to us in subtle ways, even today. You know, if you're not exceptional in some way, what good are you? If your kids aren't exceptional in some way, what kind of parent are you? If your kids aren't beating every other kid at some avenue of of their life, then, then are you really trying as a parent? Little lies creep in. And we may not ever hear someone say those exact words, but we can feel that in the culture. We can, even when we're around other people, even around other friends, uh, we find ourselves comparing ourselves to each other, and we find ourselves pitting against each other ourselves without, without even, I don't know, a moment passing, all of a sudden we feel, wow, they're smarter than me at this, and all of a sudden we don't feel quite as good anymore, right? That happens, doesn't it? Or we're around somebody who's not as smart as us, and we feel, oh, I'm pretty well off. God says there's a dignity in being ordinary. And by ordinary, by a jar of clay, let me, let me be clear, there's, you know, in our house we have, it's kind of backwards, like we have ordinary dishes that we use every day, we have special dishes that we use when we have guests over, but if we have too many guests, we use paper plates. Uh, so it's like, but somewhere in between, there's, there's these special dishes, and then there's the everyday dishes, and they get chipped, and they get bumped, and sometimes they break. Uh, we try to be careful with them, of course, but we use them every day, they're normal. And uh, that's the idea with, with this idea of being jars of clay, that we are ordinary. And the only reason that might be offensive to us is we buy into the lie that if you're not number one, you're the first loser, right? But that's not how God's economy works. That's not how the Bible works. That's not how the gospel works. Uh, it can be our biggest fear to be ordinary, and failure makes us feel ordinary, we're taught that our worth is in our talent and our skill and our treasure, our looks, whether we're loved or not. You know, in Chariots of Fire, uh, there's one of the characters, uh, Harold Abrams, is a sprinter, and he believes that he has 10 seconds running down that track to prove, to justify, he says, my whole existence. I have 10 lonely seconds to justify my, my only existence, my whole existence. Rocky Balboa, you've heard this as well. 
He says, I want to go the distance. No one's ever gone the distance with Apollo Creed. And if I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I know, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from the neighborhood. I mean, have you, ever, have you seen Rocky? He is, you know, if he doesn't go the distance, then he's a bum? Where did that come from? If he doesn't go the distance, he's still a really good boxer, right? He's still disciplined. He can still do a lot. But he believes if he, if he doesn't go all out, then he's a bum. And you would think that, that pastors don't struggle with this. You know what? You get a bunch of pastors together in a room, immediately we're comparing each other. To us to each other. It's not a constant thing, it can, but it can be a very subtle thing. It's something we're also susceptible to. Who's published a book? Who's got a bigger church? Uh, who, I don't know, has fancier clothes? Who, uh, has, who, who are people talking about? Who has the bigger Twitter following? All of those things, when we're around others, we compare each other, us to them. And so where are you most afraid of being ordinary? Where do you find your significance? What, what's the thing that if for some reason wasn't true about you anymore, uh, an achievement of yours, if, if that was not true about you any longer, what's the one thing that you have now that if it was gone, you wouldn't know what to do? That if it was gone, you, you wouldn't know where your value was. We all have those. Where are we most afraid of being ordinary? Well, that's what we fear most. However, there's what we uh, expect the least, what we most fear and what we least expect. Uh, what we least expect is, is that God could use anybody like us. When Megan and I came to D.C. to interview for this position, to plant a church, to, I mean, it's been such a journey already, about three years almost, um, we came and we stayed in McLean uh, at uh, the Staybridge Suites at that little hotel there. And one night, we looked up, uh, kind of on Google Maps, what's around, what are we close to, and we saw that we were eight-minute eight minute drive from Langley, from the CIA headquarters. And we thought, that's pretty cool. Like, let's go check it out. So, so we go, and we get in the car, and it's like, I don't know, 8.30, 9.30. It, it's something. It, it's, it's late at night. Late-ish. Uh, and uh, certainly not work hours for most people. So we drive up there, go down George Washington Parkway, and, and, uh, and, go, go, and we take the exit, and we like, okay, this is great. There's going to be a welcome center. There's going to be, you know, uh, flyers and maps and things. And we get there, and there's a massive sign that says, you know, like, I don't know what it said. Uh, like, you can't enter, essentially, if you try, we'll shoot you, is kind of what it said. And uh, we thought, oh, this is not what we thought it would be. Uh, and so I was going to take a picture of it as I turned around. And then there's a bigger sign that said, no photography allowed. So, okay. <laughs> I'm putting my camera down. I promise we're driving very slowly. Like, don't shoot us. Like, <laughs> we're, we're, we're just, we made a mistake. Sorry. Uh, I think what we ex would expect the least is that us, you know, we who are not credentialed in any way like that, would one day have the CIA reach out to us and say, hey, we want you. We want to involve you in some very important plans. And even though you don't feel ready or prepared to be a part of this, it's incredibly important. Uh, it can change the world for good. And, and, and we, think you can, we think you can do it. Now, isn't that the core of, I don't know, the Born Identity and, and those movies? 
where the man, man wakes up, Jason Bourne wakes up and doesn't know who he is, but all of a sudden finds he's a spy and he has all these special skills. He can take anyone down who tries to attack him and survive no matter what. He just has those instincts. Or an older show, Alias. Anyone ever watched that? It's an old one. Yeah, okay, we got a fan, great. Uh, you know, Sydney Bristow realizes that she's heavily, actually she was first uh, recruited by an enemy uh, agency, but that's a different story. Uh, but realize that she has talent all of a sudden. There's something inside of us that feels like we were made to be a part of something bigger than us that maybe we're not quite prepared for, but it would be okay. And in the gospel, that is the case. In the gospel, what we would least expect is actually true, that God doesn't just involve the qualified in his plans to, to bring, expand his kingdom uh, around the world to build up his kingdom, to, uh, to change lives with the gospel. He doesn't just use professionals. He uses all of his people. He uses every one of us. He delights not just to, qualif- not just to call those who are qualified. No, 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 actually he doesn't because none of us are qualified. Instead, he qualifies those he calls. He doesn't call the qualified. He qualifies the called. And the distance between those two statements can make a huge difference in how we live our lives. There'll be many times that we feel we're not up to a task. There's someone in our life that is going through a hard time, someone who uh, frustratingly keeps resorting to old patterns of behavior, someone who our heart aches for and we don't know, like we feel like they need God's work, that they need, maybe there's something we could say, but we don't know what to say. Somebody who uh, who's searching for God, and, and we, we just don't want to mess it up by trying to get in there, right, and say something dumb, so we just kind of don't say anything at all. The thing is, God loves to use those uh, who are vastly unqualified and who feel vastly unqualified. The fears of all the actors and actresses and every other person who has ever felt like on the inside, maybe I'm not, and I know I'm not, who I present myself to the world to be that all those fears are okay, that it's okay that we're ordinary because God loves to use ordinary people for extraordinary things. We have this treasure in jars of clay. You know, you, it made you wonder, it, it might have made you wonder why Jesus picked the disciples he did. I mean, if you could have been there, if you were an HR uh, executive on the day that Jesus was picking his disciples, you'd be like, no, no, that's a bad hire. No, 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 you don't want that one. That's a bad match. You know, you had Matthew, a tax collector. You had Simon the Zealot. You had, like, the, the, you know, the man and the one who wants to take down the man, right? In the same pool, like in the, in the same pool of 12 disciples. If you were in HR, you'd say, never put them together. That's never going to work out. You had a fisherman, um, several fishermen, who didn't know anything about uh, what they were doing, and you didn't have a single religious leader in that whole group of Jesus' disciples. Not a single religious leader. You think Jesus would bring in some experts, right? He didn't. So you think, okay, once the initial 12 come in, well, maybe eventually, right, then Jesus will make sure that everyone, no, he sends people out as they go. He sends them on mission. He sends them out with the gospel. He calls ordinary people. And there's something even when we feel like screw-ups, like Peter, I mean, Peter definitely should have been fired a couple times. <laughs> really. 
I don't know how Peter kept making the cut. And even at the end, after Peter denied Jesus three times on the night that he was betrayed and before he was crucified, even after that, Jesus welcomed him back, restored him, and actually made Peter, of all people, the leader of his church. He made him the spoke. He was the one who spoke, who preached the gospel for the first time on that day of Pentecost when thousands of people became believers. You know, we all blow it. And, and how we handle that makes a huge difference. When we blow it, we can learn things about ourselves that touch on the truth. But how we respond is so important. Because we can respond in, in destructive ways um, or unfortunate ways. And the gospel is the answer to it. So in 1986, you know, NASA had the, the Challenger, Space Shuttle Challenger, explode. I don't know if you, maybe you were alive to see that, remember that. Uh, maybe you weren't. But th- there were a few things that engineers ahead of time saw as a problem. Engineers reported this as a problem, but those above them said, it's not a problem. And there's one engineer who was interviewed by NPR uh, just a few years ago uh, named Robert Ebeling. And even that night, he, he remembers telling his wife, this thing is going to blow up. I can't shake this feeling that this thing is going to blow up. But his pleas were denied, were refused. And of course, it did blow up. And he said as he responded, he suffered deep depression that, is, he's, that he was never able to shake the guilt. And there wasn't so much guilt that he was feeling. It was just shame. Because he, he kept thinking, I could have done more. I should have done more. And he still feels that way a little bit today. I should have done more. Uh, and, and he says, I feel like that it was one of the mistakes that God made to pick me for that job. You know, and he goes on to say, when I see God next, I'm going to ask him. And he, I think he's a believer to some extent. He says, uh, I'm going to ask God, why would you pick me? I'm such a loser. Why would you pick me for such an important job? You know, we will fail. We'll screw up. And that, that's a major thing. But when we screw up, God's intention is that not that we wallow in shame or that we even are shocked that we fail. Because we will be shocked that we fail. Because we, we do believe that, that we can do this, that we should do this, we should be better. We do believe we should be better. And yet, God wants us to hear that when we screw up, that there is grace, that he can welcome us back. And in this case, these are, these are things that that he could not have probably done anything more about. I mean, what's he going to do? Chain himself to the shuttle? Um, like, really? He, he really did try. And so there are times that we ought to remember not to beat ourselves up unduly. Uh, but the important thing is, is to listen for what God is telling us in the midst of failures. Because in the midst of our failures, God wants to do something beautiful. Something absolutely Beautiful. There's um, a kind of, there's a Japanese word called uh, kintsugi or kintsukuroi. I'm probably pronouncing it wrong. That that's, it's an art of restoring broken pottery. It's, you, you take ceramics, anything that's broken, a bowl, a vase, anything. And I don't know, it, your first inclination might be if this white bowl breaks, I'm going to find some, some white uh, you know, adhesive of some kind. And I'm going to try to make it look like it was never broken in the first place. But what this Japanese art does, it takes the pieces of broken pottery and takes this adhesive or epoxy, whatever they use, and they they mix in gold. So that every crack is not just 
not just a little visible, it's highlighted in gold. God knows that we're going to mess up. He knows that we're going to try something, we're going to fail. He doesn't want us to hide in shame and, and, and never engage again. In fact, God wants to knit us back together, not in such a way where our brokenness will be hidden from the world, but even in such a, a more beautiful way um, where our flaws and the ways God has repaired us are even more brightly visible. In a way, that's what this means, that, that we, though jars of clay, uh, are, are what holds uh, this treasure, this, the glory of Christ, the glory of the gospel, that we realize that our lives, yeah, we're going to mess up, we're going to be broken, but it's not about us, right? It's not about us. It's about him. It's about God and his glory. And we, if you've ever seen this, and I should have, I didn't tell anybody that I was doing this, so I, I would have had a picture otherwise. I'll show it next week. But there is a, there's a it's beautiful artwork. Broken pottery put back together with gold. So the little the cracks are just lined with gold. It's absolutely stunning. And, uh, and in the philosophy, the true life of an object or a person begins the moment it breaks and reveals that it is vulnerable. You know, in, yeah. Anyway, uh, I could go on with that for a while, but uh, the, you know, it, in a similar way in, in the movie Good Will Hunting, uh, you know, the moment that really changes for Will Hunting, uh, you know, he's this brilliant mathematician with a terrible, uh, just all kinds of baggage from his past. Not his fault, but just he's, his father was very abusive. And one of the big turning points for him was when he realized that, that it wasn't his fault all that happened. That was a huge turning point, and that's the moment in the movie where he actually begins to, to live and to feel free and to make his own decisions. And it's a wonderful turning point in the movie. There's what we most fear, but then what we least expect. We most fear to be exposed and made vulnerable. We are, and yet what we least expect is that our vulnerability and being exposed is actually the starting point of something far greater than the life of, of trying to present to the world something that we're not. So third, what this means for us, how we live as a result. It's what we most fear, what we least expect, and how we live as a result. So, so how does this work? Right? If we know that we are insufficient for a task, how can we actually step forward in living out that task? I mean, there's, there's first what you might think of more typically as, as God wants us to, to, to spread the good news about Jesus. He wants us to tell others, right? Be, as we've said before, if we care about people at all, we will want to tell them. It, if what we believe is true, we're going to want to tell others about what we believe. Uh, and that's intimidating at times, right? Well, then there's, there's other ways, however, that we need to shine the, the gospel into the world around us. There's hard conversations with, with family and friends. There's hard conversations with, with, our, with our spouse, maybe. There's, there's the day in and day out of, of, of not knowing how to get over your own insecurity to, to love somebody well. There are a few ways to look at this. Uh, I think in Toy Story 1, there's, this is one way not to do it, okay? Toy Story 1, you've got Woody and Buzz. And, and uh, Woody is a little jealous because Buzz is the new superhero on the block, the new toy on the block. Has anyone seen this? It's been a while, right? Okay, good. 
And Buzz thinks he can fly. And, and there's this thing throughout the movie that, no, Buzz, actually, you can't fly. You're just falling with style, right? Because it's true. He's a toy. He can't fly. He just kind of climbs up and falls and somehow glides, and it looks good, right? He, he's faking it. He's trying to, uh, just trying to see, can I just hack at it? Can I hack away at it and just see what happens? Uh, no, that's, I think that's reckless to go into something and just say, well, I'm just going to do whatever comes first, uh, no, we're meant to approach a situation where we feel intimidated, approach it with prayer, approach it with, with caution, but also boldness. Okay, second, do we fake it? There's a comedian named Gad Elmala, and he, um, he's French, and he's trying to make it in America. So there's this, this story about how he was in a restaurant, maybe in France, I can't remember where, and he was entertaining the crowd, singing some songs, and there was a very wealthy patron that came in and, uh, and, and said, hey, sing something in English. Only the guy didn't actually sing English, and now they did Gad. Uh, but the guy who wanted to hear English, he didn't understand English. He just wanted to hear it. He just liked how English sounded. Uh, so Gad totally made up an English song. And not using real English words, he just sang something that sounded like it was English. Uh, and you can look it up on YouTube. It's pretty funny. Um, but he's just faking it. Well, no, no, no. That's not, that's not sincere. Uh, we don't want to just fake uh, important things like that. Uh, and, and even Tom Hanks has also said, you know, I know sometimes at three o'clock tomorrow afternoon, I'm going to be on set and I'm going to have to deliver some degree of emotional goods. And if I can't do it, that means I'm going to have to fake it. And if I fake it, that means they might catch me at faking it. And if they catch me at faking it, that's just doomsday, he says. And he as well wonders, you know, how did I get here sometimes? How, when are they going to discover that I am a fraud and they'll take everything away from me? So, like, we have that, but no, we can't fake it. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Why? To show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. If we were to ask ourselves, if you were to ask God, God, do I have what it takes? I think his answer would be something like this. Fear not. I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. And I will be with you always, wherever you go. A little bit from Isaiah 42, a little bit from Matthew 28. It's not so much about whether we have what it takes in ourselves, but who we're taking with us. Who is with us in this journey? You know, failure is a lot more common than success is. Um, it, it's something that we can grow comfortable with, and especially in God's world. I heard this, this last week with our sonship group, um, which is a great Bible study we've been doing. The, the, the speaker made this point. Um, it, I mean, what if in your family, what if, what if you had a child, and your child was learning to walk, and the first attempt that your child had at walking, they fell down? Could you imagine yourself saying to the child, well, that's it. <laughs> you, can't, you don't belong in our family anymore. <laughs> you tried. You failed. Sorry, in our family, we walk. This is what we do. Walking is a way that it's something this family does, and you obviously can't cut it, so you're out. You have no use in this family. No, of course not. Of course you would never say that. Of course, and God has the same attitude towards us. Like, we're going to stumble. We're going to fall. We're going to uh, trip over ourselves. But God just picks us back up and even holds us by the hand as we go. 
So we can go stumbling sometimes, but knowing that it's not about us, but about him who is greater than us, who's shining through us. And we know that at the end, you know, we see Jesus who, being the light of the world itself, became a jar of clay. We look to Jesus who himself became so ordinary, so starkly ordinary, that, that people were confounded, uh, that people were amazed and astounded that, that someone so ordinary as him when he was older could have such an understanding of God's word that he did. That someone so ordinary could do the miracles that he did. They didn't understand how someone like him, so ordinary, could be used for such big purposes. Well, he himself was, was God in the flesh. And he proved his power and sufficiency for everything that he has planned for us and for the world by his death and his resurrection from the dead. And so as we live, we can live knowing that that power of his resurrection is with us. As we said earlier, his spirit helps us in our weakness. It's okay that we're not perfect. God can use us. He's with us every step of the way. Next week, we'll pick this up, and we'll tell you a little bit more about how we go through this. Well, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you uh, do not give, on, give up on us when we fall. You do not give up on us when we stumble, but that your attitude towards us is of patience and love. Father, help us not take ourselves uh, all that seriously. Help us to, uh, to take you and to regard you even more highly than maybe we already do. I pray, Father, that you would use each and every one of us uh, in, in the lives of others, that you would use us to do things, to see you do things through our involvement in their lives that, that we can never do on our own. Father, none of us is, is as impressive as, I don't know, Dr. Phil or someone who seems to have all the answers on a TV kind of setting. Uh, we, we, don't, we, don't, we aren't that polished, but, Father, your power can do so much through us ordinary jars of clay. We pray that you would do that, that through King's Cross we would see the gospel change hearts, change homes, change neighborhoods, change this region with the gospel. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.